the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time for Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Dr. Chen is the pastor at Grace Church of the Bay Area, a church committed to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ through verse-by-verse expository preaching to learn exactly what God has revealed in His Word. Now, here's Dr. Chen with today's message. They say these days that we live in a divided country. The politics specifically of our nation have pulled us further apart, or so they say. Same nation, but different views, diverse opinions, sometimes even polar opposites, but same nation. Though perhaps not as drastic, the same thing can happen in the local church. I say not as drastic because the core beliefs are generally the same, but in some ways perhaps it is more drastic than politics Because, well, it's the church, God's people. How can there be disunity? How can there be division, grace, love, peace, and all that, right? In fact, if I were to ask for a show of hands, we are a church that is only eight years old. And so many, if not most of you, came from another church either eight years ago or more recently. If I were to ask you, uh, ask for a show of hands of how many of you have come from churches where there was division, where there was disunity, where there were factions, where there was perhaps even a church split, I think the number of hands that would go up would probably bring most of us to tears. It is commonplace today, especially here in America. And unfortunately, as it is in politics, so it is in many churches, And so it was in the church of Corinth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. We have finished with Paul's greeting to the Corinthians, and now he gets into the first issue that he wants to address with the Corinthian church. And that is, there is division in that local church. Specifically, as we've just read, there are groups or factions within the church that are claiming some sort of allegiance to various individuals that were still alive at that time. 
Paul shuts them down and then talks about his time with them and how he's glad he didn't give anyone more reason to claim to be a part of the party of Paul, as it were. Now, the situation is unique to that time with the various apostles and early church leaders still alive. But we can learn much about unity and division within the local church. And though we may not be able to relate to the specifics of the disunity in ancient Corinth, we can learn both from their sin as well as Paul's rebuke. Ultimately, whatever form division takes, the underlying sins are the same. And aside from the sin, there is another commonality that modern-day division in the church has with what happened in Corinth. And that is this. Division within the church is extremely dangerous. Though you may think that there is no division here in our church, the issue is not always what's said or exhibited publicly. It's what's whispered outside of church among friends, behind closed doors. It's what's thought and harbored in your heart. It is the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the gossip. These are all potential seeds that can blossom into a sinful and dangerous poison known as division. And this morning and next week, we will be looking from this passage at five components of division in the church. We're only going to look at the first one this morning, and we'll look at the remaining next Sunday. But the first point is from verse 10, which is really the meat of the lesson, whereas the remaining verses 11 through 17 are more descriptive of Paul's experience and and what is specifically happening there in Corinth. And so I want to spend our entire time this morning looking at verse 10 and the first component of division in the church, which is the appeal. The appeal. Let me read for you again verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, though we're only going to cover our first point, the verse is so rich that I want to break it down to four sub-points. And so this morning, we're looking at the appeal, but I want to give you four aspects of the appeal. And the first, letter A, if you will, the brotherhood of the appeal. He begins by saying, now I exhort you, brethren. Once again, we see the love and the God-centered perspective of Paul, what he has for these Christians. It might be helpful to remember that they're not behaving in a manner worthy of the Christian calling. In fact, some of the ungodliness is specifically directed personally at Paul. And yet, he is gentle. He is loving towards them. He is gracious. And we see this not only in his calling them brethren, my brothers and sisters, my family, but also in the word exhort, I exhort you, or appeal if you have the ESV or NIV. It literally means in the Greek to entreat, to encourage. The old English word that we probably don't use much today would be beseech, which is actually in the King James. And the way it's used here gives the sense not of a demand, not of, a, of something rude, forceful, yes, but polite. It means to beseech, to exhort means to come alongside someone. It's like putting your arm around someone and say, hey, listen, it shows brotherly love. It, it shows the gentleness of Paul despite the attacks from these people that he is addressing. And then, of course, he goes on to refer to them as brethren. He doesn't call them enemies. He doesn't call them sinners. Or perhaps it would have been easier just to not refer to them as anything. 
but he calls them brethren. Family, my brothers, my sisters. Even in the midst of division or perhaps because of it, Paul emphasizes that they are family despite being a split community. And this goes back to all that we've seen thus far in 1 Corinthians regarding the grace that they have received, that they all share, and part of which is the position that they all have in Christ. They are all children of God and spiritual siblings of one another. And this is no different than how you might try to mend strained relationships in your physical family. If there is discord among siblings or between a parent and a child, the first thing you say usually or the first thing you think is, look, we're family. Don't do this. Hey, you're siblings. You shouldn't be treating each other this way. And this is especially true when there's disunity within the family. And Paul's taking the same approach. Listen, we're family. This shouldn't be happening. So in this simple address, Paul shows us not only how to approach division, but also why division is so wrong within the church. It's because we are family. After all, as the saying goes, blood is thicker than water. But you know what's thicker than blood? The bond that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second aspect of the appeal, the basis of the appeal. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see that phrase, the name of Jesus, or the name of Jesus Christ, you know that it's referring to all that Christ is. That was just a way of saying a representative of everything that that person who has that name entails. It's the name of someone, represents the totality of that person. So in this case, he is appealing to them, exhorting them on both the character and the will of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he exhorts his brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, by the authority and because of the fellowship in Christ. Those are the basis of everything that he's about to say in addressing the division in their church. See, it's not his opinion. It's not just his emotions. It's based on Jesus Christ and his will and character. In fact, if it were completely up to Paul, based on his circumstances and how he felt what was most convenient for him, he could easily just write them off. There's plenty of other churches. Why spend all this time having a scribe dictate this letter and then have someone walk it over to this church? But there's a greater good. There's a greater basis at work here, which is the glory of God. And so, in, through, and because of Jesus Christ, he exhorts them. And generally speaking, we know that it's in line with Christ's character and in his will that his body, the church, be unified. Obviously. The picture goes without saying. You wouldn't want your physical body to be torn apart. But what does that mean exactly? The question is very important to know the answer to in this day and age when unity in Christianity is pursued at all costs, even compromising doctrine. Is that what Paul is saying? Is that what Paul wants? That if we can all just get along and stop fighting, then we will exhibit the love of Christ? You know that's not the case. So let's move on to our third point for this morning. The basics of the appeal. The basics of the appeal. 
he says that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now we come to the issue at hand, the division. He starts with the general before moving to the specific, and the general principles are these two. He says, I want you to agree, and I want there to be no divisions. The word agree literally means to speak the same thing. And in that day, the word had heavy political overtones of disputing political factions coming to a unified peace in agreement of one political issue or one cause. We actually also have evidence of this word back then being used on the inscription of a grave to indicate the harmonious life between a husband and wife that were in that grave. In this context, the word agree speaks of unity within the local church, specifically the church at Corinth, but also for all local churches. There's New Testament teaching that does call for unity within the universal church, Ephesians, for example, But here Paul is talking about a specific local church. The implication for us then is that there is a call in Scripture for unity within Grace Church of the Bay Area. And this kind of agreement is in the name of Christ. It involves the things of Christ. So we must have agreement on who He is, the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior, His will we have to have agreement on as revealed in His Word and so forth. Spiritual matters, doctrinal matters, things of Christ. And Paul goes on to say that there should be no divisions within the church. He's not being repetitive when he says agree and no divisions. He's actually addressing a separate but related issue. See, divisions was a word used to speak of the breaking or destruction of unity through force. It was also used of a tear in a piece of clothing. Right? You know that when you're clothing tears, it doesn't just happen. Something forces it to tear. It's a rip. Also, it was used of political factions fighting for power. Metaphorically, this would refer to people who have a different opinion or dissension. In fact, an interesting use of this very word in the Greek is found in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, 9, and 10, where you see the crowds were divided. Same word. And they were divided after these various crowds heard the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so they were arguing, they were fighting about the significance of Jesus' teaching as well as who he was. Of course, the Pharisees were arguing that he wasn't who he claimed to be. And so even among the crowds, there was division. And so this kind of gives you an idea of how that word has been used in the Scriptures. If it helps at all, division, the Greek word, is where we get the English word schism. So what Paul is confronting is the Corinthians' divided opinion on important matters. Understand that this isn't about having differing opinions on non-essential matters. We don't have to all agree on the same things regarding to food preferences or schools or things like that. These were the kinds of important doctrinal things that were hurting the church. In other words, you're not going to cause sinful division in the church because you can't agree on where to eat after service or what your favorite color is. But you are going to cause division if you disagree on doctrine or if you create factions or groups that claim allegiance to various church leaders, which is exactly the situation going on in Corinth. 
In fact, though not as blatant as what was happening in Corinth, this is often what happens in church splits today as various groups take sides with a particular pastor or elder or church leader and then they split. And so Paul is warning against division in issues that are foundation, foundational rather, to the biblical functioning of the local church. And it's not that you aren't to have an opinion on things. It's not that you can't speak up if you think there's, there's error being taught or that something can be done better for our church service. It's not that you can't walk away from a service or a sermon understanding that I, as your pastor, am indeed imperfect and a sinner. You should. But I think we all know the difference between just having a difference of opinion, recognizing and accepting something, versus making that something an issue and causing problems because of that issue. I want to give you some indicators that where an opinion may be something that's leading to division within the church. This is not a complete list. But some things just to look out for in your heart. The first is very general, and it's anger. It's anger. If there's an issue, if something happened, and you are angry about it, then that's a problem. Even if you initially started by wanting to help, if it grows into anger, then you are sinning because all human anger is sin. You know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares anger to murder. An actual murder or not, nothing good comes out of human anger. It causes alienation and animosity and even the most sinful of relationships, so how much more in the church? You may be right, but if you being right includes anger, you need to repent of that anger first. Otherwise, the way you approach it and the way you deal with it is going to cause problems because you're approaching it through sin. You need to get the log out of your own eye. In Matthew 7, where Jesus speaks of that, he doesn't just say, stop trying to deal with the speck in someone else's eye, deal with the log in your own eye, and stops. No, he says, deal with the log in your own eye first, and then you can deal righteously with the speck in someone other's eye, someone else's eye. And so if you are mad about something, you need to repent of that anger, get the log out of your own eye, and then you can approach and deal with it unemotionally, rationally. And I believe more often than not, when you deal with your anger, the issue is actually going to go away. A second way that you may be tending towards division or dealing with an issue wrongly is by jumping to conclusions or making assumptions. We tend to assume the worst, don't we? Especially when there's an issue that we don't like, when someone does something we don't like and we don't know their reasoning for it, we tend to assume the worst reason rather than giving the benefit of the doubt. This is true because we're sinners. And this is true because one of those sins of being a sinner is being proud, and so it feels good to assume that people are less godly or have improper motives. Oh, he was late to church. I bet he slept in. There's no assuming that maybe something's wrong. Maybe he's fighting a cold and yet still wanted to worship with you, fellowship with you. It just assumes, oh, he's sleeping in. Oh, he's mad. 
oh, he's not doing well. Nah, he says that, but I know he got fired because he's just a lazy worker. We just assume the worst all the time, always. You, you ever been cut off on the freeway and thought, oh, I hope he's okay. He's probably, you know, really late or rushing the hospital. No. You don't get past one word, which is jerk, right? We just assume the worst about everyone. And so that's why I added this. Assumptions, jumping to the conclusions can be very dangerous to the unity of the church. I think a lot of times we jump to conclusions because of past experiences, right? We've been in a similar situation and it was bad and we get frustrated. And so we assume this is the same case today. Years ago, when I was living in Albania, I met a man who was visiting. And it's interesting, when you live in as, as an expat, you meet a lot of people who basically their whole lives or their whole adult lives, they've lived in different countries, whether they working for various U.S. embassies or whatever. And this was one of these men. He has, had lived in many different countries. And in one of those other countries, he had met another American who was now living in Albania and had married an Albanian, a friend of ours at church. And so this friend of a friend came to visit. And this guy was extremely socially awkward to the point that he was actually very needy and very rude and put people out without recognizing it. He really rubbed people the wrong way. And this apparently happened in churches everywhere that he went. So much so, in fact, that our Albanian friend that he came to visit cut all contact with him. And this guy who I had barely known, the, knew the visitor, we had become friends on Facebook, he actually messaged me six years later. I can't take it anymore. They won't respond to my calls, my emails, what's going on? And I'm not saying that was right of them to do. I'm just saying, giving you an idea of, of how people perceived this individual. Well, as we said, we became friends on social media, and he was very confused about why people all over the world treated him the way they did. And so he actually would write me these long messages, both when I was in Albania and when I was here planning a church, and he asked for my counsel, and so I would respond with counsel. He accepted it. He was thankful. All was good. And then radio silence for a few days. And I remember, I think it was our first group of members in our church seven or eight years ago. So, of course, I was excited, and I posted a picture on my Facebook wall. And I just wrote the caption, as I do every time, new members receiving the right hand of fellowship. And not addressing any former message, not continue our conversation, but addressing that picture, he messaged me and he said this, the right hand of fellowship, huh? Know something? That kind of garbage talks smacks of total fundamentalism and judgment. Don't start with your judgments of my situation or person. It does not all caps work. It's conservative pastors such as you who make others who struggle feel worthless. All because of a picture on my public wall with the phrase, right hand of fellowship. I messaged him back. I apologized for the misunderstanding and explained that the phrase, right hand of fellowship, comes straight out of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. It does not reflect anything that we believe or really how we treat people. There's no way you could determine that from a caption on a picture. Then he explained. It was in a church in Asia where he was working for the pastor for two years. 
something had happened in the kitchen of the church and he had knocked over someone's ramen and the soup got on someone and he believes it was because of that that they fired him. And the phrase that they used when they fired him after two years was, we are withdrawing the right hand of fellowship. It was a very difficult situation for him and simply using a phrase that reminded him of a negative experience brought back a flood of emotions for him And so he just assumed I was exactly like that Korean pastor. The problem was he could not separate his emotions and his experience from the truth or even his ignorance of what the truth may be about me or our church. And so it was easy for him to assume and jump to conclusions about me and all of us. In the same way, we can come here We love the preaching. We love the fellowship. We praise God for the church, as so many people have said. So thankful to have found a solid church here. And then I do one thing, or I say one phrase, or the worship team leads us in a particular song, or we put out a certain type of sign outside. And all of a sudden, the baby is thrown out with the bathwater because one little thing triggers a past frustration. And this leads to the first one we looked at, anger. Ultimately, the problem with this is that when you do that, you make your experience dictate what's right or wrong. In other words, you become the authority rather than God. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You're invited to join them for worship service in Burlingame, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit the website gracebayarea.org for directions and other information, or to view a live stream of the service. As a listener-supported program, we ask that you consider making a tax-deductible donation so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Donations can be made through our website, kfax.com.